Happy Mother's Day, moms. Very, uh, very excited that there's a day that is about you. Hopefully people make it about you um, and celebrate you as, as mom. Um, I also know that, uh, that we've got, uh, well, we have some brand new moms, or at least brand new babies, I should say. I don't know if any of them are here today. We have moms that are expecting, very excited to celebrate with you uh, in that. Uh, I also know that, um, that Mother's Day for a lot of people is really hard, and it's a painful day, uh, whether you've lost your mother or maybe your mom that's lost a child. And uh, I just want to pray for you uh, for a moment here. So if you'll join me again in prayer. Lord, there, uh, there are some heavy hearts every Mother's Day, Lord. Um, God, thank you for forgiving us moms. Lord, thank you for, for all the moms that, that have loved us well, Jesus. I especially thank you for moms that have raised us to know and love you. Lord, um, God, I pray for people that, that just miss mom today, whether she died this, this last year or, or years and years ago. Uh, God, I pray that, that they would know that you are with them, Jesus. Lord, I pray for moms, too, that have lost children, um, children that have either died or children that have just written off the family. Lord, will you, will you bring about healing there, Jesus? We, we love you, God. We, we, we're grateful that we're never stuck if we are in you, that you, you bind up our wounds, Lord. Jesus, we pray that, uh, that our time today would glorify you, God, that you'd speak to us through your word, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, so this passage is, this is not a Mother's Day theme sermon. In fact, we're going to read it, and you're going to be like, what? <laughs> Why? Why are you here on Mother's Day? Um, we will honor women uh, through this passage, though it might not be obvious at, at first. Um, but uh, looking around the room, I don't know how many young kids we have in the room. Um, there are some PG things that we're going to get into towards the end of the sermon, just so you know. Uh, so if you don't want to have that conversation on Mother's Day, you might want to take them to, uh, <laughs> you make your husband do it, but uh, take them uh, take them to Sunday school. But Solomon, uh, Solomon's a guy that had 700 wives, and eventually we've got to talk about some of that. So, uh, Ecclesiastes, I'm glad that's funny. <laughs> Ecclesiastes chapter 7 um, says this, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? And we all like feeling like we have control. Um, but really, we have very little control in life. Uh, the preacher sees that God is in control. He's observed that we can't, we can't change what, what God has, has made. We can't change his plans. We don't have uh, editorial authority. Um, and he, he says we can't straighten out what's crooked. And this takes us back to chapter 1, verse 15, when he said, who, who can straighten what is crooked? But here he includes God in the picture. Now, he's not saying that, that uh, crooked's not evil, right? He's not saying that God is authored evil things. Um, but it's easy for us as, as we look at life and we look at the things that are bent that we wish were straight and to wish that we could change them, that, that God would let us change those things. Verse 14, he says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. I doubt any of us struggle with that, so we'll move on. In that day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other 
so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So we're, we're to consider that he's made one the day of prosperity and the other the day of adversity. And it reminds me of Job and his wife. Now, if you're not familiar with the story of Job, really short version, Job, uh, a righteous guy, loses just about everything in a very short period of time. All his kids die, loses almost all of his possessions, has his wife, which sounds great, but then she says, why don't you just curse God and die? Um, and, and he responds with such wisdom, it's incredible. He, he says, are we going to take the good that God gives us and, and not receive the bad that we get to from him? In, in Christianity, there's not a plan that you can sign up for that, that only gets good stuff in life. Uh, the American church, I think so often, sells uh, a gospel that, that says that that is how it works, that if you follow Jesus, everything will be good. Sherry mentioned uh, a video that we're going to show on June 2nd and 9th in, in the evenings, that a lot of it talks about that, how, we have, how, how America has twisted the gospel. And the reality is Jesus tells us life is actually going to be hard. If, if you follow Jesus, it, it will probably even be harder in a lot of ways. You might have more difficulty in life than prosperity. The Bible, as it talks about what God's given us, what he's trusted us to, there's providence, it, it describes it as our lot in life. Or you could think of it as, as the hand that you're dealt, right? you, you got to play the cards that you were given. You can't call a misdeal and get a new hand. And the preacher tells us that God's in control. He's sovereign. And we can trust that God is good. All right, we have no problem trusting that God's good when it's a day of prosperity, but even in the day of adversity, we can trust that God is good. And he goes on, he talks about worrying about the future. Like We don't know what's coming afterwards. We, we can't say what's coming next. So we can either worry or we can trust God. We can be stressed out and anxious or we can trust the God who makes both the day of prosperity and the day of adversity. So the question is, do you trust him? Do you trust God with your future? Right? We, we like to make plans. We like to think that we can plan things out. But if you've lived very long, you know you really can't plan that much. You have plans for today. Right? You have plans to celebrate mom. Some of them are going to go right. And, and some of them are, are not going to go as you planned. I speak from experience. <laughs> he writes, uh, consider the work of God. And he's saying that we need to praise God for all of the good. And we need to trust him when life is difficult. Here's our, our truth statement. This is what I hope you get from this, this whole passage here. All of our schemes will fail. We cannot make ourselves right before God. We need Jesus to be our righteousness. Our plans and our schemes will fail us. We can't make ourselves to have right standing with God. We need Jesus to be our righteousness. Verse 15, he says, In my vain life, I have seen everything. And if you haven't been with us in Ecclesiastes, go back and read the first six chapters. He, he's partied harder than you. He's wealthier than you. He, he is he's better looking probably than all of us. <laughs> this guy lived life. He accomplished more than any of us. He says, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who or perishes Sorry, there's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. And we've all seen this, right? We've seen good people 
get a nasty disease. We've, we've seen, we've seen uh, good people die at a really young age. And then we see the opposite. We see wicked people thrive off cheating and, and manipulating and stealing. We, we see them live long in their years, and it looks like they're blessed. And this doesn't seem right to us because in our minds there's this formula, or there should be at least, but I think a lot of us believe there is, that, that if we do good things, then good things will come our way. And we see this all over life. Like students, we tell you, your parents tell you, your teachers tell you, if you study, you'll get a better grade. There's logic to that. Um, we know like if you work out and if you eat right, your body's going to be healthier, right? And yet we probably have all heard about the guy or know the guy who's a runner and had like 5% body fat or something like that. And at 45 has a heart attack. We know it doesn't always add up. So this gets exposed when we believe this way. This gets exposed when a bad thing happens. And, and we think, or maybe we even verbalize, why me? And behind the why me is the thought that life isn't supposed to work this way. It's supposed to work out, out that if I do good things in life, that good will come my way. Have you thought about Jesus' life? Right? The one who literally did everything right. The preacher sees that it doesn't work that way. And it looks like there's maybe a glitch in the system. He recognizes that God is sovereign. So this is his advice to us. It's pretty interesting. Verse 16, he says, Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? And some of you are going, yes, I've been waiting for this verse. I love this church. Why don't other churches tell me not to be too good? Just be kind of good, right? Is, is he telling us to be a, a C or a C-plus Christian? Is he, is he telling us to just shoot for the middle of the road, to go to church pretty often, to pray, especially if another Christian's at a meal with you, pray then, right? And, and you know you got your Bible on you at all times because it's on your phone now. Um, you've seen a couple Christian movies. Is he saying just be be an okay Christian. No, <laughs> he's not. Sorry. Solomon sees a righteousness that isn't right. It appears to be righteous, but it's an imposter. It's fake. It's self-righteousness. Self-righteousness has a lot to do with the good things that we do. Reading our Bibles, sacrifices we make, how much money we give to church, serving people, church activities we're involved in. But self-righteousness has maybe even more to do with the things that we don't do. Often our self-righteousness takes more pride in what we don't do. And we're so good at playing the comparison game. So we see horrible things that other people are engaged in. And we think, I don't do that. I don't steal I don't cheat. I don't lie. I've never killed anyone. I don't embezzle money. I don't abuse alcohol or drugs or whatever. We, we're, we can be very proud of the things that we do not do. Self-righteous people are almost always blind to their self-righteousness. Most self-righteous people are convinced that they're not self-righteous. And Jesus gives us multiple examples of this. He, he talks about this. One uh, that maybe you think of is is the prodigal son. If you don't know the story, there's two sons. The younger son comes to the dad and says, hey, I want the inheritance. I want it now. 
He basically says, I wish that you were dead so I could have what's coming my way, but you're not dead, so will you just give me your stuff? Because I don't, I don't care about you. I want your stuff. Dad gives it to him. Crazy. Dad gives it to him. Son goes away, and he squanders it. He's partying, living a hard life, blows through all of his money, G- gets this job feeding pigs. He's looking at what the pigs are eating, and he's longing for the, the food that pigs eat. And it says he comes to his senses and realizes, i got to go talk to my dad. i got to see if he'll give me even the worst job that he has because then I would have plenty to eat. So he takes off, goes back to dad. He's practicing the speech in his head. Dad sees him from a long ways off. And it says dad, dad runs at him. Dad meets him, hugs him, kisses him. Son's going through his little speech about how sorry he is. And I'm sure he means it probably. But dad, dad doesn't even hear it. Like, he's just so excited. He takes off his robe, puts it on his son. He takes his ring, puts it on his son's finger. He calls out to his servant. He says, hey, slaughter that fattened calf and fire up the barbecue. We're going to party. My son that was lost has been found. So this party ensues. And um, the older brother, who'd been working in the fields all day, the older brother that didn't ask for the inheritance, the older brother that's been really faithful and obedient he comes home and he hears the music he he can smell the the roasted meat and he's like what is going on he finds out that his punk little brother came back blew all dad's money and he's livid he's so mad he won't even go into the house right so dad has to come out to him and dad's like no you, you don't understand your brother was lost and now he's been found And the son says, I've been working my tail off every day for you. Every day. I never, I haven't asked for you to slaughter the fattened calf for me and throw a party for me and my friends. But as soon as this son of yours, doesn't even call him his brother. As soon as this son of yours comes home who blew all your money with prostitutes, you're going to celebrate him. And he won't come into the party. Jesus tells another story, Luke 18, verse 11. It says, the, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I, fi- I fast twice a week and I gi- give a tenth of all I have. Then the tax collector says he stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So in the Pharisee, we see this self-righteousness is very based in religion. But with the elder brother, he doesn't even mention God. It looks like his self-righteousness is just based on morality, just being a good person. The preacher in Ecclesiastes tells us self-righteousness will kill you. you. You won't even know it's destroying you. So he warns us, don't be this super righteous person, this uber righteous, overly righteous person. Your rightness based on being a super Christian, he says, is actually destroying you. You fool yourself into thinking that your efforts are what save you, what make you right. That pride is sin-filled and will destroy you. Verse 17, he says, Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out of both of them. Many people are able to see through self-righteousness. They see the hypocrisy. Maybe, maybe they even see that it doesn't make sense that we could be good enough 
for a holy God. So maybe they just say, forget it. I'm going the other way. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to live like I want. I'm going to live as foolishly as I want. I don't care about being good anymore. I'm going to do what feels good to me. A preacher isn't saying, he says don't be overly overly wicked. He isn't saying you can be a little wicked. He isn't saying, go ahead and dabble in some sin. Right? He, he points to the danger of giving ourselves over to sin in this passage. Verse 20, he's going to say, everybody sin. Nobody, nobody on this planet is righteous. Every Christian continues to fight against sin. But it's another thing to deliberately pursue sin. He says that leads to perishing. Don't be foolish. And so we have two temptations. We've got self-righteousness on one side and, and unrighteousness or wickedness on the other side. Religious people, generally, we struggle with self-righteousness. Non-religious people generally struggle with, with unrighteousness, with wickedness. Both paths, he says, lead to destruction. Both paths are full of pride because they believe they know what's right. Right? They're, 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 they've determined their own scheme in this life, their own plan to make it through this life. Both say, I know what's best for me. Both really are serving as their own Savior. And the preacher says, the one who fears God won't fall into either of those. The one who fears God will take a, a totally different path, not self-righteousness, not wickedness. He's saying that there's a way out of this, and it's, it's done by fearing God. Now, we look with New Testament eyes at this passage, and we see, we see the hope that we have in Jesus. We know we have no righteousness. We know we, we don't have right standing before God on our own. We know that we needed Jesus, the righteous one, the one who knew no sin, to trade our unrighteousness for his righteousness. He says part, part of fearing God is trusting in Jesus' finished work on the cross as the payment for our sin. Fearing God, as we'll see in the, the second half of this book, is a major theme as we move from the vanity of life to fearing the one who created life. The book ends in 1213. It says uh, to fear God and to keep his commandments. And, and here in chapter 7, he tells us to fear God, and, and we can escape. We can escape that judgment. Phil Riken says, Fear of God is the awe and holy caution that arises from the realization of the greatness of God. The awe and holy caution that arises from the realization and the greatness of God. Do you fear God? Do you revere God? Fearing God involves understanding he is God and you are not. It's a respect of his power, his might, his wisdom, his authority. Proper fear of God helps keep us from self-righteousness. Fear of God also helps us Keep from living a wicked life because you understand that God is holy and you don't want to fall under judgment of a holy God. Verse 19. Wisdom gives strength, strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never fails. So he's told us we need to avoid self-righteousness, this fake righteousness. We need to avoid wickedness. What we need is, is a true righteousness. And then he says there's no righteous person on the planet. So don't be wicked. Don't, don't, don't be super Christian. And you have zero chance at being righteous on your own. Verse 21 and 22, he holds up a mirror for us. 
It says, do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. So you know the situation. You hear someone, not your servant, you hear someone talking, and, and they badmouth you. And, and he's saying, don't freak out about that. Right? Don't freak out. You weren't meant to hear that conversation. But we've all had that happen. We've all either heard what someone said about us directly or, or we had a mole that told us exactly what they said. And we think, how dare they say that about me? That is rude. That is disrespectful. That isn't true. Even if it is true, that's really rude. And, and Solomon slams on the brake, brakes in verse 22 here. He says, you know hearts. Or, you know hearts, your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. He says, you've done it too. We've all said something to someone else out of frustration about someone we know. And it feels to me like he uses this example to to kick our self-righteous legs out from underneath us. This example nails us because we're all guilty of it. None are righteous, not, not one. Instead of being hurt by someone's words, we should extend the grace that we would hope for. And we all have people in our lives that it's hard, it's hard for us to deal with. And sometimes we can deal with that on our own. And sometimes we legitimately need to process. We need to talk with someone else about that. So when you do that, though, it's not a license to gossip. It's not a license to be rude or unloving or use sinful words. If you're talking about someone, if they were in the room, would you talk about them that same way? We should ask ourselves, do our words glorify God and reflect his love for that person? Titus 3.2 says, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. My mouth is so parched today. (laughs) Verse 23 All this I've tested by wisdom. I said, I'll be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness and folly and the foolishness that is is madness. Solomon knows, the preacher knows, that wisdom can only take us so far. Wisdom has limits. Assuming that the preacher is Solomon, we know that God granted him wisdom like, like no one else had seen. But wisdom see, er, Solomon sees that wisdom only takes him so far, that wisdom was too deep for him to even get to the end of. In verse 25, he continues to look anyway, but not only at wisdom, at wickedness, at folly. And what he finds is really troubling to him. He sees the darkness of hearts. He sees that there's darkness in every human heart, and there's no hope that we can be righteous because deep down in our heart, there's this wickedness, this rebellion against God. He sees that darkness in others. He sees it in himself. Verse 26 says, And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner's taken by her. And he, he gives a really specific example here, but there's takeaways that aren't just limited to this example. Right? He's discovered the bitterness of being trapped in sin, that sin enslaves us. So here's one thing he isn't saying. He isn't saying that all women are this way. 
This is where I talked about this being a weird Mother's Day passage. He's not saying that all women are this way or that only women are this way. Men can be this way too. Sin is an equal opportunity employer, as I heard someone once say. So here's what he is saying, though, that there are traps out there to entice you to sin. This world is trying to keep us from following Jesus. He gives a real-life example of how he is tempted by sin. My guess is there is a specific woman that he had in mind, maybe multiple women, given what we know about him. And she was seductive. It was a lure. It was this trap that enticed him, and he was enslaved. And at first he thought he was getting exactly what he wanted. But then it didn't, it didn't fulfill his desires that he had. So he went deeper and deeper into that trap of sin. And in this case, it's sex, sexual temptation. We'll talk more about that in a bit. But the picture here is, is there's a trap that's set. And he says, the one that pleases God will avoid the trap. Earlier he spoke of fearing God. The one who fears God will fear sinning against God and, and can escape the temptation. However, the sinner will be enticed. The preacher says he's taken by her. She wins. Describes her heart as snares and nets that, that lure us and entice us. And temptation so often twists what is good. Right? It takes good things and, and twists and manipulates and perverts them. Sexual intimacy is not bad. Right? It is a gift that God has given us. God has given us a right place for sexual intimacy in the covenant of marriage between man and woman. Sin tempts us to fulfill that outside of what God has given us and told us that it's good. Sin lures us. It tries to trap us and enslave us. The sinner, he says, is taken by her. So Christians, no matter what temptation you face, remember that there are traps all over the place set for you. The preacher says the sinner will be trapped, but the one who pleases God has a way of escape. So if you know Jesus, there's hope in escaping temptation. If you feel like sin has this stranglehold on you, that, that there's no hope that you'll always be caught in this sin, that God isn't powerful enough to deliver you from this sin. That's a lie. Though I'm sure all of us know that feeling. We have to trust that the Holy Spirit, like Sherry read about in chapter 8 of Romans, that the Holy Spirit is in us. The Holy Spirit is able to help us escape temptation. My guess is if you've been uh, around church for a while, you've met someone, or maybe this even happened to you, where, where God just totally delivered them, like fairly instantly, from some kind of long-term struggle. And that, that happens sometimes, right? And to that, I, I say, praise God for that miracle, because that is special. I think more often what happens is God does this over a long period of time, usually longer than we would ever want. Um, I don't know if your kids ever had a, a rock tumbler. You guys know what rock tumblers are? Okay. Uh, so if you don't, it, it's, this little, it's this little machine that, that tumbles rocks, right, for days and days and days to smooth them out. So you take a rock that, that has, like, some neat colors in it, but it's, like, jagged. It's not smooth. It's not polished. You put it in there, and you, you put in what they call grit, and just think of, like, this super fine sand, and, and the thing just tumbles, like, it takes forever, just days. I hide it in my garage, so I can't hear the thing, hopefully. 
And, and it, it tumbles in it, with that grit for days and days. And then you take it out and it looks a little bit better and you put in this finer grit, right? Round two and for days. And then I, round three, I hope it's as long as it goes. I haven't done it in a long time because it takes so long. Uh, it goes and goes and goes and then it comes out and it's it's actually beautiful. Like, it's amazing that this rock that just looks kind of okay, now it, it, it's gorgeous. Like, it's amazing that, that God created this thing. And so often, the, the, the delivering from, from temptation that just seems to, to have you in a stranglehold, it's like that rock tumbler. It, it takes a, a long time. Sometimes God chips away with that chisel in big swaths, and, and those hurt usually. Um, and, and sometimes it's like that tumbler. And, and for a while, you can't, even, you can't even notice that there's progress. And then you look back one day and realize, oh God, how did you do that in me? That, that, used to, that used to have me around the throat. And now I barely even think about that. So, so what do we do when there's temptation, when, when we're faced with these traps? Well, we got to confess to God. We got to come to God even if we haven't fallen into the temptation yet, we've got to confess that, that we are tempted. Or certainly if we, have, if we have fallen to the temptation, confess to God and pray for help. Going over and over to God, recognizing that you need him. We've got to confess to others as well. There's something about saying it out loud to another human being that, that gives some accountability. We've got to do that. We need to go to the word and see what God has already revealed to us. We've got to go to his word. Certainly, if there are good resources out there, Christ-focused resources, hopefully, go check those out. But, but we need God's word, and, and we need to realize that we have the Holy Spirit within us. Jesus rescues us from sin's power by giving us the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord. We're not on our own trying to resist temptation. You're not strong enough to resist temptation. I'm not strong enough to resist temptation, but he gives us the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, what a great verse. It talks about him providing a way out for us in temptation. And that's great that he's given us a way out. Do you look for the way out, or, or do you flirt with that temptation? Do you get up as close as you can, hoping to not get trapped? Verse 27, behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found one, or I've not found. He says, one man among a thousand I've found. So let's stop there for a moment. He says, out of a thousand men, he found one dude that he connected with, that, 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 like his soul connected with, that he, he could relate with, that he could be totally real with. I, I don't want to spend forever on this, but guys, we're not great at connecting with each other, right? We, we, we have a lot of friends, maybe, but so often our friendships are so shallow. We, we might be skilled at small talk, but if you're like me, what you're really good at and what you use most is joking around with a guy. I saw a guy this last week that I, I've known for years. Like We're good friends. We've had great talks. First thing out of my mouth was like this little poke at him. I was making fun of him, a little friendly fire, like nothing serious, but... I'm making fun of him, and I, I walked away later that evening going, why did I do that? It's so dumb. I, I could have had a great conversation with him, but instead I, I did that. Guys, we need, we need to connect with other guys. We have to work hard at, at being real with one another. We need guys in our lives that know us so we can talk about real stuff. 
so that we can confess sin. Think of it as preventive maintenance for your soul. Let's keep going. Moving on in verse 28. But a woman among all these I have not found. Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) When it hit me that we were doing this on Mother's Day, I was like, Lord, can we straighten out this crooked thing? (laughs) All right. So what's going on here? Because one could think, though my guess is none of us in the room do, but just in case, one could think that a guy with 700 wives and 300 concubines, and concubine is such a weird word that we use at church. So concubine, if you do not know, is uh, it, it, it's a woman that they're, they're not married, right? So maybe there's like a social class issue, so they can't be married, or they're just not married. But no matter what's going on there, the concubine, it's about sex. That's, that's what the relationship is about. So as I was saying, you would think a guy with 1,000 women just loved women, right? That he, he held them in high esteem, right? That on, on Mother's Day, he's going to make sure that all of his baby mamas <laughs> have the best breakfast or whatever. I don't even know. Um, and, and I'm making fun of that. Uh, it's crazy, that he had a thousand women. It, it, it's unbelievable. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that he did not treat women well. I, I don't think that that's a stretch. I wonder, did he even know the name of the woman that he chose to sleep with on a given night? Solomon objectified women, I, I guarantee it. He saw their legs, he saw their chests. For him to say he could not find one in a thousand comes as no surprise that there's no genuine connection there because it was all about sex. When we twist sexual intimacy, when we go outside the boundaries of the covenant of marriage and pervert it, it damages us. Men and women, it, it messes up our soul. It wreaks havoc on how we relate to one another. I, uh, I got two boys. I get nervous. I get nervous that um, they can access anything we want w- with, with all the screens that we have, right? Like even if I've got safeguards at home, that Circle Disney thing, we, we've got stuff that's t- to try and protect, right? And, and we, we decide like what age, but man, I get, I get nervous of the access that my boys have to images, and it's my job as a dad to, to train them to stay pure because it, it's, it's going to, that stuff wrecks you. I'm not saying there's not hope. I'm not saying there's not healing. But, man, it leaves scars. So, so my job is to teach my boys to honor God and to honor women w- with what they look at and with what they don't look at, with, with how they think about women, with how they treat women. Job 31 Job says, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Have you made a covenant with your eyes, men and women? Because I know that pornography isn't just a male problem anymore. Uh, For females, the the problem is is running rampant as well. So as nervous as I am for my boys, I'm way more nervous for my girls. Woo! Uh, Because they're going to be around boys that... That parents, some parents that don't even care about God, 
and maybe they don't even care about treating women right. And they're going to be boys who, who, who are better at parenting their sons than I am. And yet the lure, the temptation, the access is still out there. So, so I'm nervous that, that, that boys are going to see stuff on screens and their, their soul is, is going to detach. Right? And they're going to look at my girl as an object, right? That the, 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 the women that they see on screens, they won't, they won't realize that's someone's daughter. And then they're going to see my daughter and not realize how precious she is in God's sight. So when Solomon describes this seductive woman, you can feel the bitterness that he feels of being trapped by sin. I'm so grateful that um, we have a group here called Harvest Restoration. Uh, Dan Stevens leads it. I don't know if Michael's in the house today. Dan and Michael lead this group, and, and it's, it's for men that struggle with sexual addiction. And, and if you're like, oh, I'm not addicted, if you feel trapped, this group's for you. If you feel like you just keep failing in this category of lust, this group is for you. Um, we have a card in the back, uh, back of the info booth. Grab this. You, you, can, you can shoot them an email. They meet every week, and, and they would love, they'd love to help you out. We also have a group that's just waiting. It's, it's, we don't have any participants yet, but for women, if, uh, if you're your husband or if it's your boyfriend, fiancé, if he struggles, uh, there's, a, there's a support group that's just waiting in the wings, ready to happen for you. And maybe you don't feel trapped by that at all. Maybe it's some other sin because we all got our sin. Stop hiding. Adam and Eve, they sin. They realize they're naked, and it says they're afraid, so they hid. Hiding is a fallacy. You, you cannot hide from God. We can hide from other people for a long time, may, maybe, maybe all of our lives, but we cannot hide from God. Do you even want to keep hiding? Do you want to keep pretending like this sin isn't wrecking you? Verse 29, he says, See, this alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. One pastor wrote that God made us good. We chose sin, and we've been plotting ever since to overthrow him. Humanity has been scheming since sin entered the world, trying to make it on our own. We navigate this world trying to figure out the right way to live. It might be trying to be super righteous. It might be the opposite or somewhere in the middle. But we cannot be right on our own. Our sin is great, and we need one who is greater, one who has true righteousness. We need Jesus. I praise God that there is hope. He lived the life that we could only fake, the life that we could only hope to live. He was tempted like us, but he never, he never fell into sin. He died for us. He took our place, he washed away our sins. I found a quote this week by uh, Jerry Bridges. I love this. It says, not only has the debt been fully paid, there's no possibility of going into debt again for those who trust, into Christ, for those who trust in Christ. Jesus paid the debt of all of our sins, past, present, and future. As Paul said in Colossians 2.13, God forgave us of all our sins. We don't have to start all over again and try and keep the slate clean. There is no more slate. Praise God. Righteousness is not what we do. It's more of our state of being. 
The only way we could be made right is through Christ and what he's done. So how do you know if you are right before God? If the answer isn't Jesus, you're banking on yourself. You've made a scheme that you're hoping that will work. If there's an element of I, I do some good things or I'm a good person, it's not going to work. Only Christ can make us right before God. I'm going to read again from Romans 8. I love this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? Have you been trapped in sin? Do you keep, even after trusting Jesus, falling for sin? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set their mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind of the flesh, uh, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone do, who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. I love Romans 8. And I know that I've only scratched the surface of, of the richness that's there. Our prayer team is going to be in the back. And if God's tugging on your heart about anything today, may, maybe something before you ever walked in the doors, or, or maybe it's something that, that as we've been in this service here, God's been pushing on you, I'd encourage you, don't let this moment go by. Go and, and you don't even have to tell them the story if you don't want, but let them pray for you in that. If you recognize pride, if you recognize self-righteousness, if you recognize a pride that says, I know what I'm doing, I I'm going to make my life the way I want it. If you're done with that, go, go back and be prayed for. If you feel trapped by sin, go and be prayed for. Go and confess. Let's pray. Jesus, you are good. Lord, I thank you that, that we have hope in you, Lord, that, that even though, even though we're dead in our sin, before you, Jesus, you made a way for us to be made right. You made a way so that I could be forgiven of all the bad stuff I've done and all the stuff that, that, that I try to hold it up as good that I've done to you. Jesus, I thank you that, that in Christ, even though we continue to battle that old nature, that, that there's still sin that we deal with daily, that we have the Holy Spirit in us, that there is hope that you give us a way of escape. Jesus, I thank you that, that we, because of you, can stand before God as righteous. Because you traded our unrighteousness 
and gave us your righteousness, Lord. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.